What's up, guys? Before we get going today, just want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry and has been tested and refined through years of wisdom and experience. You need to check Skybox out. There's a lot of posers, a lot of pretenders in the handicapping industry. Skybox is the real deal. They've been leading clients to profit for years now. I promise you they will do the same for you. You've got football season coming up. There's no better time to test these guys out. Like you can do a day pass, 10 bucks, you know, test the waters a little bit. I recommend doing a full on your pass and just diving right in. I promise it'll pay for itself and then some, but I get it. You maybe want to try it for a week, maybe try it for a month. They're going to have a package that fits your price range. You could do a week-long all-sports package, week-long sports centric. Right now, you're really kind of going with either NASCAR or baseball. There's some NBA final stuff as well, but that's kind of what you're rolling with the Skybox right now. You could do a month-long all-sports, month-long sports-specific. Whatever kind of fits your price range, I promise you these guys will have a pack, picks package that will fit your price range. Particularly, I know a lot of you degenerates out there are going to want to be diving into this during football season. Don't just aimlessly wander onto the board uh, your first football Saturday, football Sunday of the weekend. Let Skybox guide you. They're going to make you money. It'll be well worth the investment, and you won't have to meet the man on Monday morning and him asking you for a Venmo request. Skybox is the real deal. I promise you, you're going to want to try these guys out. I'm wearing a Skybox hat as we speak. They have some pretty sick merchandise as well, but their picks are even better. Trust me, you're going to want to check these guys out. Go to their website, skyboxsportspicks.com, pick a package, and then you put in the promo code RIPPY, and you get 20% off just for being a listener to this podcast and hopefully subscribing to the newsletter. So you're welcome for that. But please, when you do go buy a package, use the promo code because it tells them that we sent you and you it, it costs less. So it's free money for you, and it helps out the website as well. And by the website, I mean us, not Skybox. But I appreciate uh, appreciate their business. Happy to have them on board. Seriously, go check these guys out. If you're into the sports wagering game, I promise you they're going to lead you to profit and it's better than you flying blind and then having to shell out money to your bookie on Monday. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. You know the drill. It's been a couple of weeks. Might be time for a grill corner with Greg. LB's is absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. If you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter right now, that's rippyrights.substack.com. All you do is type in your email. You get a newsletter from yours truly three to five times a week and discounted meats. I'll let you decide which one's better. But Greg's on a special for Rippy Rights subscribers. Just show him proof of subscription and you'll get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a pack of sausage for $5. That's one hell of a start to your week. I'll reach out to Greg this week, see if we can change up the deals for the people out there. Mix it up a little bit as you get off in the mix in this late summer swing. We need to go check him out. It's absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford is so lucky to have it. Go try the Lane Train special, Keith Carter special, the just array of mouth-watering sausages they have, whether it's the uh, ribeye sausage, spicy ribeye sausage, Oh, Greg, I think had a blueberry sausage a while back. They have all kinds of stuff over there. You need to go check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Today, we have on John Wells, better known as John the Beer Snob. You're probably wondering who that is. He is a 
beer connoisseur, expert, whatever you want to call him, uh, based out of Little Rock, Arkansas. A uh, really interesting guy uh, is huge into craft beer and kind of helped revolutionize the craft beer scene in Little Rock, Arkansas. But, you know, his knowledge kind of pertains to the South and really all over the world in terms of how uh, beer and craft beer took off the boom of it, the micro brew scene and all of that and what it became today. He's a really interesting guy. I think you'll enjoy this interview. Uh, I met him while I was an intern at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette in the summer of 2017, I guess that was, and I uh, did a story on him, and I just kind of had this in my back pocket for a while, wanting to catch up with John. He's a really interesting guy. If you like beer, uh, I think you'll really enjoy this interview. He has a lot of really interesting uh, insight on how a beer should be made and things like that. I just find him a really interesting person to talk to. And uh, if you don't like beer, it's July, and we will get to the football later on in the week and next week. So let's go. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Welcome in. Happy Wednesday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. On the other end of the line is no one yet. We're going to do an open before we get to John the Beer Snob, but I appreciate you joining in for another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast. Uh, I would encourage you to go like and subscribe to the Rippy Rights Podcast, whether that's under the uh, Rippy Rights feed or the Oxford Exxon feed. Leave a review, leave five stars. You can say whatever you want in the comment section and go subscribe to the Rippy Rights newsletter. Before we get to John the Beer Snob today, I wanted to touch on a little bit of baseball uh, as the MLB draft concluded yesterday. So the only three Ole Miss players taken were three pitchers, the best three pitchers on the team. Gunnar Hoagland, of course, goes 19th overall to the Blue Jays. Doug Nikhazy goes 58th overall in the second round to the in, 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 excuse me, <laughs> Cleveland Indians. I was about to say Indianapolis Indians. I don't think that's a thing. And then Taylor Broadway goes in the sixth round to the Chicago White Sox. Uh, Tim Elko goes undrafted. Justin Bench goes undrafted. Kevin Graham goes undrafted. The latter two, uh, probably not as surprising, particularly with the draft only being 20 rounds and it being cut down. I was a little surprised no one took a flyer on Elko, uh, just as maybe, you know, honestly, I thought some teams might kind of go with one of those uh, late single-digit rounds, like somewhere in the seven to nine range. Um, and you might think that's kind of early for a guy with a torn ACL, but you got to remember it's, it's more about money than it is where you're drafted as well. And a lot of those teams in the slot value rounds, and that's rounds one through 10, will a lot of times take a senior early on in those rounds and offer them way below slot value uh, and just see if they sign. So like if the, and I'm just making a number up here because I don't have it in front of me. If the slot value of the 40, you know, the 30, 30th pick in the seventh round, the back end of the seventh round is like, you know, $300,000, someone might take someone like Elko, and usually it's a senior sign, but Elko does have a year of, uh, this was, he had a year of leverage left, but a little different with the whole COVID thing. But they would draft Elko, injured, you know, kind of damaged goods, at least in the temporary, at least in the short term, and offer him, you know, 100,000 of it or a third of it and just see if he entices him and he takes it somewhere in that 100,000 to 125,000 range. And just see if you can get the guy signed. If you can, great. You got him for way under the slot value. You got some extra money to you know, throw at one of your other slot picks. And you've got a guy that's a pretty good hitter. So I was a little surprised that no one uh, kind of took a chance on Elko, even in the uh, non-slot value rounds, you know, rounds 11 through 20. But, you know, it's probably the injury. It's probably him still rehabbing the torn ACL. Do I think a fully healthy Tim Elko goes 20 rounds 
in the MLB draft without getting drafted? No, I do not. I think he would have absolutely been drafted had he uh, kind of continued his ascent before he tore his ACL this year. Um, you know, kind of backtracking a little bit and going to up to Gunnar Hoagland getting drafted 19th overall by the Blue Jays. Very happy for the kid. Uh, Chase Parham wrote a really good column about this uh, that you can read at rebelgrove.com. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's nothing like profound in terms of like the message, but I thought Chase did a really good job of articulating that Gunnar dealt with a lot of shit that was kind of outside of his control or stuff that he didn't really deserve while he was at Ole Miss, whether it was, you know, the injury, a couple other things, start his career and uh, kind of the way he rebounded and improved. Um, I'm just glad it had a, uh, a happy ending. Gunner goes 19th overall. I think the slot value was like 3.7 million or somewhere in that range. Maybe it was like 3.5, somewhere close to that. But you get the, you get the picture. I uh, couldn't tell you how happy I am for the kid because, you know, you never knew how he was going to fall with, with the Tommy John and, and not being able to pitch for quite a while and, you know, having an injury during the draft. I didn't think he would fall terribly far just because of the year he put together before he was injured and the arm talent, right? Like his delivery and his frame is, is projects so well. Like it, I mean, at the base, the base of it seems to be uh, base level is probably a number three, four starter in the bigs for six, seven years. And the tie end is about as high as you want to go. Delivery delivery is pretty effortless. The stuff improved while he was at Ole Miss and the frame is just absolutely perfect for what you want with, a modern day MLB starter. So I didn't think he would fall terribly far, but you never know with these things, right? I mean, you know, I didn't figure he would fall too terribly far just because, um, you know, teams aren't as scared as of Tommy John as they were 10 years ago or even just five years ago, but you never know with those things, right? I mean, if he, even if he fell to the late round, he would cost himself a significant amount of money where in reality, you look at it now, I figured a healthy Hoagland would have gone somewhere in the, I don't know, 8 to 13-ish range. And he only ends up falling at worst about 10 slots if you want to go from the high end of what I thought or most people thought he would be healthy to where he ended up. All in all, he uh, ended up with a uh, highly deserved payday and a uh, kind of avoiding disaster in terms of the start of his professional baseball career. And if you look at Hoagland's career in its totality – it's still mission accomplished. He was drafted in the first round as a competitive balance pick on the back end of the first round by the Pittsburgh Pirates. I think it was 35th or 36th overall. I think that slot value was somewhere over like a million. Maybe it was slightly under two. And then he comes back, improves his draft stock, and you know gets drafted 19th overall. So overall, it's mission accomplished. But you know, you think about the kid really struggling to start his career at Ole Miss get slotted into the rotation immediately. A lot of expectations on the kid's shoulder. Maybe some of it a little bit unfair. I don't know. I, I, you know who's to actually judge on that and starts really slow. And it was funny. I was thinking about this the other day. Hoagland as a freshman, you know, he, he would struggle. And then we'd talk to him after games and he would seem very dejected, almost like someone uh, you know, like shot his pet or something. And I remember catching myself thinking at the time, and I've kind of kicked myself for doing this, uh, since you know, is there something wrong with this kid like personality may be the wrong word but demeanor wise like he I don't know like you're used to hearing these guys even when they struggle because they're kind of you know alpha males for the lack of a better phrase you know still kind of I mean Zach Phillips would go give up six runs and talk about how he just you know caught a couple bad breaks and he'll get him next time to where Gunner seemed genuinely dejected about things sometimes and I caught myself thinking particularly towards the end of the year is there something off with this kid like is there something you know 
not quite right. Like, is there something, you know, in terms of like intangibles that, that may not be right with him? And it uh, turns out that was not the case at all. And it was very probably stupid to think that way. He, you know, as, as his career went on at Ole Miss, I think his personality kind of shined out more. And as the success came out as well, I think that had something to do with the fact that he kind of, you know, became more of himself, I guess, as his college career went along. And looking back at it now, it was probably silly to have that line of thinking because here you have this 18, 19-year-old kid who's been good at something his entire life to the point where he got offered a seven-figure salary at 18 years old to go do said thing, turned it down to come to college, and then all of a sudden he sucked at said thing and really struggled at it probably for the first time in his life, right? You know, the classic story with Hoagland is, you know, he walked one hitter his entire senior year, and it was evidence of him getting by in high school ball on a really, really good fastball and not having to have anything else behind it, whereas when you get to college, you need more than a fastball because good SEC hitters are going to hit that, in particular if you become predictable. And his kind of default was, I'm going to throw this fastball over the plate and no one's hit it because no one's ever hit it as long as I've been a pitcher. And that was an adjustment for him because they hit it and they hit it hard in college. But kind of getting it back on track to my point was he's had done this thing his entire life. He's been very good at it. And then all of a sudden he sucked at it. Like, I guess it would almost have been more alarming if he was, you know, very chipper and happy after some of those days where he struggled as a freshman, right? Like, I don't know what you do in your daily job, but you know, if you're in a sales job and all of a sudden you show up to the office one day and you start losing clients and you can't close a deal to save your life, like, are you going to be Mr. Chipper at the water cooler asking, you know, what everyone did at their weekend, at, uh, did for their weekend at the break room. I, I doubt it. You're probably going to be in a bad mood too. And so, you know, I think that's probably what it was. Nothing more than that. So I, I just was thinking about that the other day, where you know, sometimes I remember us. I say us as kind of a collective media group. Sometimes just kind of questioning the the personality and the demeanor of Hoagland his freshman year, and that was short-sighted and silly. And I don't want to speak for everyone. Maybe it was just me, but I just remember bouncing the idea off some people. And uh, that being just kind of silly, because like I said, um, if you were good at something your whole life and all of a sudden you struggled with it, uh, you probably wouldn't be the happiest camper in the world. But to his credit, he got better. He improved the fastball. He improved things behind the fastball as well with the secondary stuff and turned into a really, really damn good college pitcher. And uh, it's a shame that he was never able to kind of shine his brightest on the college stage. And he was very, very close to doing that. You could argue he did it for a short amount of time in this 2021 season before it was cut short by injury but uh you know it's a shame you didn't get to have Hoagland kind of carry you through a postseason run if you're old miss it just kind of stinks just kind of in the same way it stinks that you didn't get you know three postseasons from Doug you only got two because of corona and you know just kind of the way things felt so happy for Hoagland I think it's a good place for Nikhazy to fall as well Cleveland has a really good reputation recent reputation in particular developing pitching um I figure I thought I wouldn't have been shocked if someone took Nikhazy late in the first round, but this is about where I figured he would go. I just figured some teams would be slightly deterred by the frame, whether his fastball velocity would hold up, you know, pitching more often, more frequently instead of literally just once a week in college. But uh, that, those two breaking balls play at any level and the fastball has deceptive, deceptive depth. And I think that's only going to get better as he kind of gets more into a professional program and professional coaching and at the end of the day, the object of this game is, in fact, to get people out. And Nikhazy knows how to pitch, and he knows how to get people out. And he's one of the, the greatest competitors, arguably the greatest competitor to ever step on a mound in Ole Miss. And so I think he will pitch in the bigs 
for some time. And I think that's a perfect fit for him. That organization develops pitching very well, and I think he will do well there. On the back end of things, kind of turning the attention toward Ole Miss in 2022, Elko doesn't get drafted. I think that's a big deal for Ole Miss. I saw, you know, you saw people on the internet getting excited about it yesterday. I think he went ahead and announced that he was coming back as if he needed to do so. Um, Kevin Graham, Justin Bench also announced they're coming back. Ole Miss returns its whole lineup next year. And what does that mean for Ole Miss and its ceiling? And it's something we talked about with Colin on the Major League Baseball draft preview pod last week. And I don't think my thoughts have changed a ton. Uh, of course it helps to get a hitter like Tim Elko back. Like, he'll be the best hitter in the SEC next year. Of course that helps your baseball team. I, I would be naive to say otherwise. But does it change their ceiling a ton? I'm not sure. I think with, with, with Elko, they are a back-end host. I, I would argue, if you're asking me to put expectations on this team, I think their ceiling next year is a, a host in the 13 to 16 seed range. And their floor is probably just like any other decent to good team's floor, a two to three seed in the NCAA tournament. I would be shocked, actually, if they were a three seed next year. But, you know, the floor is them not hosting and having to go on the road for a regional. Whereas if they didn't get Alco back, I think I would argue just firmly put them as a two seed. So, yes, he does change their ceiling, but is it that dramatic? No, and it's to no fault to Elko. It's the fact that they don't have any pitching. Like, who's going to be this team's Friday night guy next year? It's Derek Diamond if he doesn't have to have surgery, which is kind of a concerning proposition if you're Ole Miss, particularly that coaching staff, going into this 2022 season. You know, Gaddis, the kid from Texas A&M Corpus Christi, you hope he can be a good Saturday guy. Chase compared him to Christian Trent in terms of, like, a scout comp. That would be a pretty good comp, I think. And if you can get, you know, 2014 Christian Trent out of him, well, you're in business. But I, is that reasonable? I don't think so. But could it happen? Sure. And then you got to figure out a third starter. Could be Drew McDaniel, whatever. But point being, like, you don't really know who the Friday night guy is. You think you know, and it's not that great of an option based on what you saw for the you know last two-thirds of the 2021 season. And so for that reason, I'm not sure what – how much Elko coming back and Ole Miss having their entire lineup back changes their ceiling beyond just bumping them from a firm two seat to a potential back end host. They will have the best offense in the SEC and perhaps the country next year. I certainly believe that. They return everyone from an offense that was arguably the best, second best offense in the SEC this year, and you return all, all nine hitters back or all eight hitters back, whatever, however you want to look at it. But how are they going to get guys out? And I don't think they're done in the transfer portal. I would hope they're not done in the transfer portal because they're going to need to find two more impact arms. If you, you know, one to two, you, you'd feel better with two more impact arms in the transfer portal. But what you're not going to find in the transfer portal is a Friday night guy. And can someone take a jump? Could you find another Doug Nikhazy in this recruiting class? And, you know, that sounds silly and far-fetched. And sure, it is to some degree. But if you remember in 2019 – Nikhazy kind of got a couple of opportunities at the bullpen early, and it was like, okay, this kid's pretty good. He's been pretty efficient. And then he kind of saves their bacon a little bit at that midweek game against Louisville in early March, even though they still lost the game. But that's where it became clear, okay, this kid's going to have a say about one of these rotation slots with Phillips and Hoagland struggling. And then, of course, fast forward to June, and he's been the best pitcher on the team, and Doug Day and the legend kind of took off from there. 
is it possible that something happens like that, whether it's one of these JUCO guys coming in or, you know, someone in this, you know, current recruiting class that's going to come on campus in the fall or some of them probably already are on campus, I suppose, but that's not likely either. But I'm just throwing the possibility out there because, you know, in the fall of 2019, no one was projecting Doug Nikhazy as the Saturday starter and being the best pitcher on the roster. Uh, no one probably really knew who Doug Nikhazy was in the fall of 2019. So I guess never say never and you never know. But even with this lineup coming back, I just have real doubts about their ability to get guys out consistently. And you could make the argument, you know, they'll just mash their way through a region or they'll mash their way to being a host or a back-end national seed. Yeah, I guess, but there were times where they were doing that this year. You know, they had four guys at one point with, I think, like an 800 OPS or better in the SEC. I don't want to say that. Don't take my word for that because I'd have to go back and look, and I didn't do it. But they definitely had four guys at one point hitting 350 or better in SEC play and went four weekends without winning a series. So they kind of did that this year. And you had Gunnar Hoagland and Doug Nikhazy on the mound uh, for, you know, two nights of those four weekends each weekend, and you still had a hard time winning series. So I'm not sure how much I buy into the argument of, well, it won't matter because they'll just mash their way past uh, mediocre pitching or them having mediocre pitching, I should say. I'm not sure how much I buy into that. You're going to need to improve on the staff. I'll improve on the mound and improve your pitching staff than where it currently stands on paper to have a chance to be a host and go to Omaha. That's just kind of where I sit on that. So Anyway, that was a little bit of a rambling draft recap. Um, we'll probably get into that a little bit more later in the week. I'll write some about it in the newsletter as well, but I wanted to touch on that on the podcast before we get to John the Beer Snob. So without further ado, here is Arkansas-based beer fanatic John the Beer Snob. I, this is a really interesting interview. I think you'll like this guy. Um, I find him very interesting to talk to. And uh, if you don't like beer, there's football content coming down the pipe. So without further ado, here's John. All right, I'm really excited about this guest. We now welcome on John Wells, better known as John the Beer Snob, an Arkansas-based craft beer aficionado, enthusiast, provocateur. I don't know if you could include that in there. I read your Facebook. I think page. I, pro- I, I think I provocateured a few, a few, a few times. Yeah. So a a little backstory here. Well, first of all, I appreciate you coming on. I'm real. I've been really excited about this for a while, and uh, it's been great to reconnect. So thank you for taking a minute. Well, it's great to get the invitation, man. I love this kind of stuff. Absolutely. So like a little bit, little backstory because you are a slightly different guest than a lot of the stuff we do on the pod. Is it mostly being sports centric? But as I kind of outlined to you when when uh when I reached out, was I really just kind of talk to people and things I find interesting and about things I find interesting. And mm-hmm. this had definitely stuck in my mind for a while. So I was fresh out of undergrad interning at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette when summer of 2017. And my boss gives me a phone number of some guy who he claims knows everything about the beer scene <laughs> in the Little Rock area because I'm supposed to be covering this great Arkansas beer festival I've I Uh think is what it was called. And I think we only talked on the phone for like 20 minutes. And I remember leaving that conversation like, damn, I wish we could have like met up for a few. Like this was like, I wanted, I had so many more questions, but it was just like your basic story you'd hand to an intern. But uh, it left me wondering. And so I subscribed to your newsletter for a while. And that's kind of what kept me, I guess, you know, in touch in the loop with things. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's as good a place to start as any. You have been, 
around Little Rock for pretty much your whole life, it sounds pretty like. Pretty much, yeah. I've lived a couple other places, but really almost all of it right here in Little Rock. And the kind of uh, Google search, Intel research background, whatever you want to call it, I had I read a story on you that I think was actually written by my boss at the time, Shay Stewart, great guy, um, in 2012 about how you got into the beer scene, and it all started with the ski trip in Austria. Is this correct? That is correct. So kind of give us the background there, um, kind of up until what your newsletter and kind of advocacy for craft beer in Little Rock and really just kind of the South in general has become since. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the story about, uh, uh, I, I went on a ski trip. I got called at the last minute. I was, I'm a member of, uh, was a member of the Little Rock Ski Club at that time. And I got a call from one of the members that said somebody's going to have to cancel at the last minute. And that this was a very popular trip and that I might want to buy his ticket from him. And I got to thinking about it for a second. I really, I, I really couldn't afford it, but I, I wanted to do it. So I did it. And the trip was to Vienna, Austria. Wow. And yeah. That's a long way. And to get to go there for a very, very reasonable price. Well, I had a girlfriend at the time. And so I planned to take her with me. Well, she farted around until the, the plane tickets weren't available anymore. So we flew together from here to our connection in Amsterdam. But after Amsterdam, we didn't know what we were going to do. Well, I asked to see if maybe they couldn't seat her on our plane. But what they told me instead was, no, we're actually trying to get people off this plane. It's overbooked. Would you be willing to take her flight? Well, shit, her flight went straight to Innsbruck. <laughs> I mean, we the other group's going to have to go on a bus, and I'm going straight in. I said, hell yes. And that really was one of the one of the more interesting landings I've ever been on. And I'm also a private pilot. And boy, I'm telling you, they have to thread the needle to get a plane in that place. But anyway, so we were just killing time, waiting for everybody else to get there and sitting at the bar. And I started to drink this beer. And up to that moment in my life, I had never thought that beer was supposed to taste good. I thought beer was supposed to be marginally able to cover up the taste of alcohol so that if I wanted inexpensively to get a buzz going, that's what I would drink. I would drink the beer. And I literally would, would sit there and compare beers side by side that were just the commercial ones off the shelf. And I really would most likely pick the one with the least flavor. And yet all of a sudden I'm drinking a beer that really, really tastes good. And I, for the first time in my life, I got kind of pissed off that I wasn't going to be able to keep drinking. <laughs> I mean, after three or four of these things, I'm getting pretty looped. And I thought, well, I can't keep doing this, but it tasted so good. I couldn't believe it. And I, I remember the name of the beer. It was Adam Brow, which at that time I thought was a local brew, but it turns out it, it actually came from, from uh, Holland. And so anyway, that, that was the story. And from that point on, I became very interested in beer and started exploring around and learning, trying to teach myself stuff. And then eventually the newsletter just kind of, Evolved out of that, I had a friend of mine who was doing a newsletter, and he had always taken his, and so he gave me a few pointers on maybe how to get it started, but really just kind of jumped in feet first. So that's a really interesting kind of way to get into it, and just to kind of set a timeline for people listening out there, this is, I read in the article, is early 90s. Do you kind of remember exactly what, what date this was? It would have been uh, mid-90s. It would have probably been 95-ish somewhere around in there 96 maybe okay and so roughly then so you're that 95 96 somewhere in the middle you're roughly how old at that point 
Um, well, uh, be 30 in, it'll be 40. I'll be 40 at that age. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're, you're almost right around 40 at that age. You'd been drinking beer a long time, I'm guessing. I had in fact, yeah. And, but and I did not enjoy it. I just <laughs> drank it because of the buzz or the price. I mean, yeah, some combination of the two, I think, is why a lot of people drink beer. Um, and so I, I find that very fascinating. So you're sitting there, you're almost 40. Like, you know, I feel like you don't, people get set in their ways, particularly with the things they drink and the way they drink them mm -hmm. and kind of get set in their habits. I imagine having this kind of like renaissance and, and new experience to where you're like, holy shit, like, what is, what is this? This can't be beer. I imagine having it happen at that age had to be a, uh, I don't know if inspiring is the right word, but I could see how at that point where you're like, why do we not have this back home was kind of mm -hmm. your thought process. Was that kind of what you were thinking at the time? That was exactly what it was. I mean, I remember I, there was a period of time there where I thought I was making progress and I really was just drinking the same old swill. But eventually I started like, I, I remember I looked at a thing and it called it a pale ale and, I, and it just sounded sissy to me. So I went, no, I want to try something more substantial. You know, I don't want to mess around with some sissy ass little pale ale, you know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden I tried one of them and bam, there it was. I mean, I had a Sierra Nevada pale ale and wow, it was, it, it from that point on, I, that, then I really was hooked. I mean, I even, the, the guy down here at the bottom of the hill, I moved in this house shortly after that. And the guy down down the hill there at the liquor store, I went in and he didn't have any craft beer. And I said, would you just, I mean, this, this, I could walk to this store. It was so close to my house. I said, could you please just order me some beer so I can buy it from you? He said, I'd have to buy a whole case of that stuff. His exact words. I'll have to buy a whole case of that stuff. I said, well, you know, I'm going to buy at least a six pack now in a couple of days, I'll come back and buy another one. And if you don't sell the other two in the meantime, I'll come back and get them. So you're not going to be out any money. I guarantee you I'll drink that case before you, before it's too much trouble. And so I went back down there. Uh, like I told him I would about two days later and about the second six pack. And I went back a couple of days after that and he, and they were gone, but he had sold them. And so I said, well, I assume you're going to start carrying that beer. He said, nah, I just don't go with it. So here I am sitting here with a, with a, what should have been a top-notch liquor store right here at the bottom of the hill right by my house and I, I can't I can't do business there so I went around the corner there and stopped in and saw a guy uh, named Doug that worked at Pleasant Valley Liquor at that time two locations prior to where they are now and uh, well he seemed to know quite a bit about it and I'd already talked to him a little bit about some wine that you know that he, he was pretty good with and uh, that really, that's another backstory of the thing is I actually was a wine snob before I was a beer snob. Really? One of my best friends is a wine expert and hell, he, he taught me more than I ever wanted to forget about wine. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, well, but wait a minute. I had no idea beer could be that good. And it's like, here's this guy giving me a perspective as a, as a born and raised country boy from Arkansas that now knows a lot about fine wine. And I thought, well, what would be it? Would it be like to kind of turn like you would um, and say, well, why don't we make beer snootier than it is? Like he's trying to bring wine down to the everyman's level so that they can understand it. Why don't I take people the other direction? Why don't I see if I can't get a little more flair to it? And that 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 again, that motivated me. I wanted to see people. You know, if you're gonna drink, drink something good. 
absolutely. And so at that point, like you mentioned, you were kind of around 40. And just to give a little bit of background as we kind of bounce around here, you've lived in Little Rock at this point most all your life. Mm-hmm. You said we did, we were, you were self-described, and I could, I, I could have dubbed you this before you had to say it yourself, Renaissance man. You said, mentioned you've done a lot of different things. You ended up as a social worker, just recently mm-hmm. retired after working for the VA's office in, uh, in Little Rock, correct? And mm-hmm. so That's correct. So you get back from the trip, and I imagine, was this encounter with the, uh, with the liquor store up the street, was this after you got back from the ski trip? It was, and I'm, I'm sure maybe a little time had passed in between there, but it, you know, we're still talking about that, that 95, 96 range. Sure. And so, so you come back from that trip, and obviously I, I, it sounds like, at least from kind of everything that's happened from it since, that's something that stuck with you. When you come back, what's kind of, like, take me to you coming back from that trip to like kind of becoming what you became in the craft beer scene. Cause what I think is fascinating about this is younger people like me, I'm 26 years old. You know, mm-hmm. Craft beer is almost kind of like a, like there's a craft beer guy that like may not even <laughs> be into that craft, like that much into craft beer, but likes to say he does because it's been around. There's not a craft beer God, but there is a patron saint. That's yeah, saint Arnold is exactly. It's so, so like, it's almost like I, I, I serve underneath him. <laughs> So it's almost like a bragging point amongst you know people my age now, but because it's so common, but kind of enlightened lightning people up to the point where you are now, it was not common at all back then, right? No, no. And in fact, keep in mind that my my progress was so slow and steady, I, I didn't actually start the newsletter for another probably nine years, eight years. And so I mean I they, there was a time that I really got into it and got into it and got into it some more. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, why don't we just go ahead and make a newsletter out of this thing, you know? Take me uh, through the progression of that. So you get back, you obviously kind of into craft beer. You kind of outlined a little bit with that example, how hard it was to get. Take me through like the next few years of kind of how you get further and further, you know, interwoven into the whole craft beer experience. What was that like over the next couple well, of Well, just to paint the picture for you, it was around that time that people first started going downtown in Little Rock. Before then, downtown was a was a ghost town at night. There'd be plenty of activity during the day, but you go down there at six, seven o'clock at night, and there's nobody anywhere downtown. And little by little, the river market kind of started drawing some attention, and people started wanting to do some things. Well, then a, a place decided to put a brewery in down, and it was, the name of the place was River Rock. It's where I believe Damn Good Ties is these days, um, yep. but in that same deal there. Omar, that just, uh, I heard he retired from Lost 40, uh, built that brewery. And so we were able to get him back into town. I say we, I didn't have to do it other than giving him good reference when they asked me about it. But this guy's, I mean, is a genius. And I would, I'd sit there and shoot the shit with him and he'd come around and talk and, you know, very, very, very personable fellow. And, um, and then lo and behold, they, we heard that there was going to be a flying saucer here and they would have hundreds of beers under one roof. And wouldn't that be interesting? So for many weeks, I would go to Bosco's and have a few beers there and then walk down to the flying saucer and have a few beers there. And little by little, well, when you, by the time you get to the flying saucer deal, now you can really explore and, and find different beers and how to drink. them. And some beers, it took me time. I, there were beers. I abs- There was one beer in particular I absolutely hated the first time I had it. And I badmouthed it big time in the newsletter. And I was on the phone with the distributor the next day. <laughs> did you really have to say that? Yeah, I kind of did. Well, I had to, I had to retract it because 
what I found out was is I didn't know how to drink that beer. The same guy taught me into going to a sour beer tasting. The beer in question was the Boulevard La Folie. And I literally, I, it was a fairly expensive bottle of beer and I poured it down to drink. I took one drink up and poured it out. I hated it. It was the worst thing I thought I'd ever put in my mouth. In fact, I said, y'all need to mix some oil with that and make a salad dressing out of it or something. It sure ain't got no place in the beer world. Well, come to find out that a, a, a beer of that quality, first off, you got to let it air out a little bit and it'll lose that vinegary smell that's kind of off-putting. And then you don't drink it cold. You drink it just cool, you know, about, about maybe a red wine temperature. Well, then when I tasted it and sipped it, it tasted really good. It's just, I didn't know how to drink it. So now all of a sudden I got to go back on the newsletter and say, you know, I was bad mouth. I was just kidding, really. It turns out it's a good beer. <laughs> so that's actually, there were two things from our initial conversation when I was an intern that still stuck with me literally to the time I messaged you on Facebook the other day is one, you call these light beers, the commercial stuff, the fizzy stuff. Is that what yeah. thinking? And two, a lot of beer is best served at room temperature. And right. that was something that just kind of blew my mind. Hell, there was a decent chance uh, back then that as we were talking on some evening that uh, I was probably drinking a Coors Light or something as we were talking. And of course, oh, I, shame I, on you. I probably had a moment where I was like, oh, maybe I'm doing this wrong. And, and I would also like to point out that this fellow's got an old Miss poster right behind his head. So, I mean, you know, there's a few leaks in this otherwise perfect facade. I'm just telling Look, our listenership knows that uh, there, there's a lot of leaks, a lot of leaks in the armor here. <laughs> We're surviving, not thriving over here. So not, that's, you're not telling them anything they don't already know. So, so you kind of get it more into kind of the beer scene. You mentioned about you know eight nine years before you start the newsletter, right? What kind of prompted you to start the newsletter? It sounds like you kind of just maybe got more and more into it, and you know, one thing led to another where. Arkansas, Little Rock, kind of the downtown starts getting revived. Uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. Pollock Saucer. I lived the year I lived downtown. That was my favorite place to go. I love oh, it. It still is a wonderful place to go. Oh, it's it was ama it's amazing. And so it breaks my heart to tell you that I have not been back there since the pandemic crisis. I hope and you I'm can, looking forward to my first visit back there. As I say, I hope you can get back there soon because you're not kidding. And I'm sure it's grown since it first opened. But when you talk about a beer list and the amount of beers they have there, it's actually kind of staggering. Like it's almost like a museum of sorts. It's uh, oh, yeah, they call it an emporium and they ain't lying. I mean, you know, what, 75 taps? You know, yeah, it, it's crazy. And so, mm -hmm. so you, you kind of get more and more into it. And I imagine it's, would you call it a hobby? Like those first six, seven years after you got back? My tax man and I had this conversation many times. He said, now, you know, um, this this could look like a, a hobby. You got to be careful about some of this kind of stuff. I said, well, you know, do you want me to just not report the income? He said, no, you got to report the income. I said, well, okay, then, then whatever it is, I'm making money on it. And, and, and Diamond Bear was my first sponsor. And I really enjoyed interacting with them, especially in those early years, but we still talk even to this day. And then, um, and then uh, Spring Hill Liquor was my next one. Um, and they were wonderful. And they, Spring Hill was committed at that time to jumping head first into the craft beer world. And once they did it, I think Colonial was right there with them and then they ended up being a sponsor with me. And, um, uh, you know, it just kind of grew from there. Uh, I loved it when Colonial moved to their new place, uh, which was a remodeled Ford dealership. 
because man, then they, 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 they exploded, man. I mean, they've got, they got all different kind of stuff in there and you know, buy it, take it home, drink it. If you don't like it, pour it out, give it somebody, you know, go get another one. That's probably actually the best way to ask it. At what point did it become a little bit of a supplemental income? So what made you want to start the newsletter? And at what point you realized you had something here? Well, I'm not so sure, but what it kind of came to me, whether I wanted it to be that way or not. I mean, I had people coming to me and talking about sponsorship. I never once went trying to sell somebody a sponsorship. Right. But, you know, I, I knew Eric that was the manager out there at Spring Hill. And so he and I probably talked about it over a beer or something and finally decided that maybe we work out some kind of a sponsorship arrangement. And, uh, and then like I say, over the years, the sponsors kind of came and went, I, I probably went through 10 or 15 different people that, that helped me with the sponsorships from time to time. What made you want to start the newsletter? How did that get processed? You mentioned, you mentioned, you had I, a I had a, a, again, I, I'm talking about my wine buddy. Yeah. My wine buddy did a newsletter and I just, I guess got the bug from him. Uh, and, uh, and he, he, he didn't, he, his was a completely different design. It's just, a, it was just that I wanted to do a newsletter that I got from him, you know, but, um, that, that really is what, what, that was the last little spark that lit. When I sent that first newsletter out, I only sent it to 18 people. I can, uh, I can appreciate that. It's kind of funny. So I was a reporter in a past life. I now live in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And marketing is my full-time gig. I do uh, just work for rebelgrove.com and reporting is kind of a hobby now as well. I guess you could call it that it's a little bit of a side job. I've only been in the marketing world a year, but it started as a uh, Substack newsletter. You know, nowadays everyone has a newsletter. It's, it's the popular thing to do. So you were way, way ahead of your time. Right. But it's funny yeah, how- there because really uh, you think about it. I'm not a journalist. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how to do what you know how to do. And so I'm, at times I felt like I was masquerading as a journalist. And then my nephew started studying journalism and all of a sudden he starts telling me about all the ethics and integrity and all the stuff that goes into it. I, man, <laughs> you know, pretty soon I realized I really was pretty much a rank amateur. <laughs> I, uh, it's, but I, I can appreciate that particularly because, so now it's easy. They have these sites to set it up for you. You literally just write the thing. People sign up on their own. What mm-hmm. was it like back then trying to build you know, now they call it a subscriber base, but I mean, like for you, what was it like mm-hmm. trying to just build an audience? What was that like? Uh, I would, well, I would have tasting sometimes or I would participate in a, in a festival or something. And, and I would just put a little something up there with a sign up letter. And that was problematic because usually people had already been drinking and I couldn't read their writing when I got home. So I probably lost about 5% of those people that gave me their their email and then at one point it just kind of took off I mean I didn't really have to do anything people were interested in it talking about it telling each other about it um but I probably I don't think I maybe got maybe a couple hundred uh email addresses just by trying to start the newsletter I think the newsletter kind of just took off right for sure and so so at that point, if you say it's about eight, nine years, it's probably oh four, oh five ish, somewhere in that time mm-hmm. when you started. It was like at what point throughout this, it's interesting from the time you get back from the ski trip and you kind of start getting into the craft beer scene and it simultaneously mm-hmm. seems to start to grow in Little Rock. I guess it 
trying to figure out the best way to ask this. At what point did you figure out that you were kind of a guy in that scene? Like, you know, you mentioned you know, it starts small as the guy, the convenience store, you begging him to carry craft beer. At what point did you realize that you kind of had some pull in this whole scene as people started coming to you? It really, it was, it wasn't a, uh, a flip the switch on kind of deal. It just, it just occurred over time, but I did, I did start to notice it, you know, um, a beer festival, that was here, that was a fundraiser and whatnot. Uh, um, they asked me to, to do a news interview about that festival. It was not the Great Arkansas Beer Festival, but it was that, it was a festival. And so once I got on TV, I noticed then that my subscribership, you know, took a pretty good pop up. But the funny part was, is I kept doing that and it didn't, it didn't keep adding subscribers. That, that only worked right there in the early days. I think once, once people, knew what they, where they wanted to get their news from. Well, that, that, they'd made up their mind at that point. Right. And so you started, it starts to grow and it starts to take off, I guess, kind of simultaneously. It was the beer scene. Cause when I moved to Little Rock, someone was like, you got to check out the craft beer scene here for a town of its size. It has an awesome craft beer scene. That's exactly and, right. You know, for someone my age, that was a popular thing to say about a lot of towns. But in Arkansas, I mean, particularly Little Rock, it was absolutely true to the nth degree. I mean, that if anything, it was undersold. What was the turning point, do you think, in the Arkansas craft beer scene where you mentioned you get the one brewery and then or, uh, and then Flying Saucer shows up? Like, it, it, was there a point for you where you're like, okay, there's actually, actually, like, you could call it a scene as opposed to people mm -hmm. just starting to carry craft beer? What was the turning point? Well, there was, I don't, I don't know if I could tell you the year, but it really exploded to where it's like everybody who knew how to homebrew wanted to open a brewery and several of them did, you know, and at one time we might've had 10 or 11 breweries right here, just in the, in the, in the Little Rock Metro. Uh, I'm not sure we, how many we have now because two things have happened since then is one is uh, Saline County has gone wet. So now they've started to pick up some breweries and some craft beer scene. And uh, uh, the, the other part of it is, is then some of the breweries here realized they really didn't know enough to be in business. And so they went out of business for whatever reason, you know. So it, I guess in a way it might've grown a little too quick there for a minute, but uh, every time somebody opened the place started doing business, I don't think, I mean, Craft beer took off. I mean, you think about, you know, we, we lost Blue Canoe, but they, they had a good run there for a while. And then um, I don't think Damn Good is brewing anymore. So um, we lost them. But, you know, even through the pandemic and everything, Flyway and Stone's Throw, man, they have just done great. I mean, they changed their business model and survived big time. And so I just, I just love that kind of Stone's Throw was another one that was not too far from my apartment because I actually lived in downtown, and so it wasn't mm -hmm. too far up from there. And that was another one I really enjoyed while I lived there. It's a kind of transitioning, I guess, away from the scene a little bit. I think your philosophy on beer is, one, really interesting, and two, kind of funny, because I'm going to read an excerpt from your Facebook page. Okay. If you don't mind. So it says... Oh, I love hearing my own words. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that the best someone someone recites something you wrote a while ago back to you uh so here we go join me in my mission to deprogram de the brainwashed masses from thinking that inferior yellow fizzy carbonated alcoholic beverages or beer just because the commercials say they do it is our duty that these folks are sufficiently awakened to see these beverages as fake beers 
zirconium is not diamond no matter how much it looks like it yellow fizzy beverages like budweiser's and many others are not beer unless you of course define beer as a drink from made from barley and or rice corn pudding popsicles sorghum ice cream or any other containing material containing sugar that includes hops and alcohol and he goes on to talk about how you there is real beer out there people just need to be educated about this at what point did for you did those words kind of become something that was that drove you? Because clearly there's passion in what you wrote there. How how quick when you got back from Austria to the point where it was like people need to stop drinking the the light beers of the world, the commercial light beers, and really be enlightened to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if I could answer that. I mean, it's it it just kind of all happened gradually over time. But uh, I was highly motivated by one of my early favorite beers, a beer called Arrogant Bastard. And I loved that beer, and I loved the, 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 the snarky tone to their advertising campaign. And I'd already kind of decided that I wanted to try and take beer to a new level up. You know, like my buddy had brought wine down, I wanted to take beer up. But um, it, it, it just... It really did. It became a passion. And when I saw that arrogant bastard and how bold they were with it, that just kind of gave me permission to do the same. The label, I don't know if you've, one of the things you might want to do for your podcast is go get their slogan for arrogant bastard beer. I mean, it is, it is hilarious. The name itself might could describe me aptly. So uh, if the slogan's anything like the name of the beer, we we might be in business. I'm telling you. And, and I, and it's their whole marketing campaign about that beer is you're not up for this. Just put it back down. You're not at this level. Go back and drink your yellow fizzy stuff. This beer's not for you. Now, I mean, that is a very, I mean, you talk about marketing. Wow. I I don't know that I'd have signed on for that one. (laughs) But it worked. So, hey, what do I know? But, uh, and then even on their trucks, Big letters. It's not too expensive. You're too cheap. It's kind of genius in some ways. <laughs> Man, I loved. I just loved it, and I, that really that that gave me a, a real kick in the pants to 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 really get out there and 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 say it like it is. And let's just get snarky about it. And that got me in trouble a time or two. There were times I would say something snarky and like I say, maybe a distributor that had been nice to me before and, you know, invited me to a few things might not invite me the next time. You know, there, there were consequences. Several people were, were got mad about something that I wrote. One in particular got really mad. But anyway. <laughs> so as the craft beer scene grows, the newsletter starts to grow and, you know, you have people coming to you because there is a certain aspect of if a distributor, like, you know, gives a shit what you say, well, that kind of means something about what you've, you know, done to the beer scene there, mm-hmm. and, you know, that people value your opinion. And well, so- yeah, I had an audience and they wanted, they wanted access to my audience as well. And I was, I was proud to give it to them. I mean, I, I did not charge anything to mention somebody in the newsletter. It wasn't like this, the sponsorship was separate from the news and, and and I, at my own sponsors, I had two of them get really mad at me because I didn't cut them any slack. They thought I was going to cut them slack just because they were sponsors. And I probably did, truth be known, but, you know, they, they didn't like the way I said it. And so I had to be, had to be careful sometimes. 
fair score. That's snark. Not everybody appreciates snark. You know, <laughs> I can uh, can relate to that. Fair score is a fair score, though. So the la- one of the last paragraphs of your Facebook description is: I prefer real beer, a beer, a beverage that is good, a good tasting concoction from made from finely malt, fine malted barley, quality hops, and has alcohol in it that can also make you act bizarre in public. <laughs> Define real just in your own words now the 20 years into this thing what's fake beer and what's real beer man that definition has evolved for me and evolved and evolved i think when i very first got into this thing there was the reinskabot rule from germany that i thought was probably should ever everyone should follow it and that is you shouldn't put anything in a beer other than uh you know barley uh, water hops yeast that's it i mean you just you don't put a bunch of frou-frou in beers and of course, Budweiser immediately comes over here and starts putting rice in it. And I think that some other ones use corn syrup and God knows what else, just because it's a good fermentable sugar, but it doesn't help the taste. But to me, a real beer is one that somebody really thought about the quality of that beer when they made it. They weren't making it just for a profit. I don't mind anybody making a profit. But, you know, when you design a beer, you're designing it so that somebody will enjoy it. There was a place up in Fayetteville one time uh, Tanglewood. Uh, they've since gone under, but uh, their slogan was, we, we, we make all of our favorite beers, and if there's any left, you can buy it. That kind of attitude, you know. That didn't exactly the way it was said, but I mean, their idea was, we're making this beer for us. We'll share it with you, but we, we drink beer like we like. To me, my thing grew and grew and grew when it came to what ingredients you could put in beer, and that was highly influenced by being introduced to Belgian beer. Belgium, everything's legal. You can put anything in there and call it beer if you want to, but they, it really, they have taken it to a next level. Of course, they're, they have a certain candy sugar that is, uh, that's made from beets that really makes a nice additive to, to the very high alcohol beers. Uh, and, and so again, now that's, that's an adjunct. I mean, now all of a sudden I'm flipping gears. I, I used to say I wouldn't put any of that kind of stuff in a beer. And now all of a sudden, I would, you know, but I don't do it or I wouldn't do it for profit. I would do it because it makes it taste better. When you use an ingredient like rice, you're doing it for profit. That makes a very, very um, fermentable sugar. And, um, and it just, it's just, it's so easy and so much more profitable. That why wouldn't they use? I mean, but now you buy a beer from, some of the great Belgian beers in particular, I mean, man, they're just, they're so, in fact, the, the very best beer worldwide, and I think most people agree, is an obscure uh, monastery there in uh, Belgium called West Vlederen. And they, wow, I mean, it's, it's, it's like drinking fermented fig juice or something. I mean, it's just delicious. I mean, it is just awesome to drink. But anyway, I digress. What can you but not? I, I, but real beer, I, I, I really, I, I, my definition has changed over time. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite so tight on that. What can you not put in a beer? Do you have any complete no-nos? I know you mentioned rice. Like, what makes a beer? I don't, I don't want anybody to put anything in a beer just because it makes money. Okay. I want people to think about beer as craft, as a craftsmanship. You, you, uh, a chef, uh, you know, a, a, somebody that really wants to have a certain flavor is not going to cut corners, nor should a beer master. I mean, you, you want a beer and you, and you work at it and you get it to, to taste the way you want it to taste. But you don't, you know, like, 
a home brewer would never brew a beer just because it was cheap or whatever like that. I guess maybe they would, but I mean, it's really not that much more expensive just to go buy it off the shelf. I mean, you know, you can make it a little bit cheaper, but not much, but it's about, it's about quality. I want, I want to know that people are in it for the craft. And this is one of the things that I used to tell the beer folks all the time. Craft beer is one of those things. It's like an aura and you don't mess with the aura. You got to play along with the aura. You've got to be a part of this thing. And too many people get into business and think like business people, and then they're making a product that they can sell to a distributor who can sell to the public. My thinking is nothing like that. I'm I'm the beer enthusiast coming in and saying, yeah, well, I, I don't want it to taste good. I want to know, I want to know that you put your heart and soul into it. And this is a beer that you really, really like. Again, when 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 Lost 40 recruited Omar, with that came a head full of recipes. Omar is old school. They've got, they've got folks of all different kind of talent over there, but Omar was the old school guy. He knew ingredients. He knew how to cook. He knew how to do it, you know, and that, that matters. I mean, that matters that people care that, that much to go to that much trouble. And so when they hired him, he brings his, um, uh, is it a, I wanted to say coach, but it was, um, Anyway, he brought an amazing beer recipe with him. And uh, it was a Bach, a Bach beer. And uh, and that Love Honey Bach came from that. I mean, he worked with the folks over there, and they put that recipe together. And that was no accident that that beer came out as good as it did. One of the things I asked you when I interviewed you for whatever that story was in 2017, and I'm not giving you any hints, but I think you'll probably know the answer. You asked me why you flipped it on me. You asked me why I thought the uh, the Coors Lights, Bud Lights of the world sold it ice cold. Why do they do that? Well, if you're using cheap ingredients, then it's going to come out in the flavor. But one thing about it is, is if you get that beer cold enough, then you're not going to taste the off flavors. The off flavors won't, won't present themselves at 35 degrees. They will present themselves at 45 degrees. But now a really good beer at 45 degrees, you get the good stuff. You get that beer cold and you won't, you can't smell it. You can't you can't really taste it because your tongue's too cold and your nose just can't pick up anything because it's too cold to become fragrance. So if I'm making a beer with cheap ingredients, I need to also sell you on the concept that it's way refreshing to drink this stuff ice cold. And like, you know, what was the, the Twin Peaks place up there, you know, had the thing with the, 20, oh, here's our temperature of our freezer right now, our cooler right now, it's 32 degrees in our cooler right now, who cares? If you're trying to hide the case of your beer, that's the only reason you would get it that cold. And some beers, I, I thought for years that I didn't like Guinness. I, I, I could not understand why people would make such a big deal out of Guinness. I would think by looking at it, it would be this ominous, gnarly, you know, grab it hard and drink it kind of beer, you know? And, and then I would drink it and it would just be nothing. And I didn't realize that I was drinking it too cold. Then I go into a little old beer joint down here off of, uh, off right there at Canis and Ronnie Parham from years ago. And there was a guy from the old country there. And he served me a Guinness, like Guinness was meant to be served. And I drank that beer and I loved it. Now I was meeting the guy there because it was a pool hall. I wasn't meeting him there because they had a beer selection. I was quite surprised when I got there to find out they had a beer selection. And, but again, it, it uh, any kind of really, really dark beer like that, it probably is not going to taste good cold. So what temperature do you drink beer at today? If you're just having a beer, pull it, it out. It depends on the beer. Again, if I'm, 
if I'm drinking beer for thirst quenching, I want a nice light lager, maybe a Yangling, something like that, or Diamond Bear's got that, uh, they got a new name for it. it. used to be the Southern Blonde, but they uh, call it Blue now. It's just, it's just got the name Blue. Man, those beers, I do want them cold because I do want to drink those after I've mowed the lawn or after I've you know, been out doing chores or something. I don't want to come in and drink a real heavy beer. I want something that'll you know, quench my thirst and get me, get me going again. So those beers, I will drink cold. Then you come up and maybe you start getting into some of those that are more, the hops are more important, like pale ales and IPAs, and pilsners, and things like that. That's when you can start warming them up a little bit so that the, 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 the aromas start to release. And I hate it that your, your, your audience can't see my hand movement because, man, I'm giving it all, you know, <laughs> that and more. Oh, right there. there we go. <laughs> but, you know, it just depends on the beer. The West Fleeter and 12 that I mentioned earlier, I would barely chill that. Barely. Maybe red wine temperature, maybe 55, 60 degrees, something like that. Uh, IPA, I prefer them usually 45-ish, 50-ish. And then again, like I say, it just depends on the beer itself. Those sours, you know, you, you don't drink those cold. They, they taste terrible cold. I'm very much a witness. And where did, so, you know, you, you clearly have all this knowledge from all, all over the world, not just Little Rock. This may be an impossible question to answer, but where did like the craft beer movement when they're down in the United States, because it sounds like it's been in Europe longer. When did the craft beer movement in the United States start and where? No, it, it actually, the craft beer started in the United States. Okay. There was a, a fellow that had been overseas and came back and, uh, and tried to open a craft brewery. It was the New Albion Brewing Company. And he poured his heart and soul into that and ran himself completely broke trying to make it work. And it didn't work. Then... Next up was the Maytag family that made all the washers and dryers and appliances and stuff. Um, they decided to give it a whirl and they opened Anchor Steam in San Francisco. And then next up was Sierra Nevada around that same time. And all that had happened to, to make their world a better place was Jerry Garcia get up on stage with the Grateful Dead drinking a Sierra Nevada pale ale. Wow, that's kind so of wild. That, I mean, it had exploded from there. And the good news was, is that those who have come since the, have, have paid homage to some of the original pioneers. And so the guy from um, Sam Adams brewed a batch of the original New Albion beer and gave that guy the money from the proceeds. That's that, we get back to the craft beer magic, the aura. It has that thing. We're all in this together. It's kind of an illusion because these guys do fight a little bit behind the scenes, but boy, out in public, for the most part, I would tell anybody, you know, speak, speak kindly of your brethren. Where is there a craft beer uh, birthplace or hub in the United States? And cause you know, everywhere you go now and it wasn't, I know it wasn't this way when you first got into it, but like I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio for a summer and mm -hmm. there was this place up by my house called Mad Tree. And it was one of the better breweries I've ever been to. I loved it there. I've had two or three, uh, beers that I would kill to have shipped to me um, if I could make it happen. I guess I could now in Texas. You know, Mississippi can't ship it across state lines. But be that as it may, is there a craft beer birthplace and a craft beer hub today? I guess kind of a two-parter. There are several places that I would think would be good, good, good labels for a hub. The the best place to do a beer 
vacation is Asheville, uh, North Carolina. I was wondering if you were going to say that. So I have yeah, a buddy whose mom lives there. That's actually the cap. You think that's one of the best you think. Michigan has got a lot of really good uh, places. Um, they speak very highly of Grand Rapids. I love Grand Rapids. It's no Asheville. Asheville has just got a certain charm to it that is just, it's just, you can't really describe it. How is craft beer and like, how has beer in general influenced your travels, particularly as you've entered retirement? Is that something you plan a trip around? How does that work? Uh, kind of. My wife and I do like to travel now. That's what's our favorite thing to do in retirement. And, and it, the really cool part is, is that she pulls me in a completely different direction. She's not the slightest bit interested in the craft beer scene. And so when we go, we do the things that she likes to do during the day. And then as the evening rolls around, then I'll slip off and go find me a little craft brewery or someplace that the locals are talking about. So it's really both. And in fact, uh, we now are regulars with Asheville. In Asheville, and we'll, we'll be going there soon. We're, we're, we're going there here in, in a few weeks. For someone out there listening to this and they're trying to figure out how to kind of get into the craft beer scene and figure out what they like, what would your advice be to them to try to discover what you like? I think one of the best things you can do is go to a local brewery and drink a flight, get a flight of beers, get those little, they're bigger than samples, but smaller than a, a portion, and just start tasting them and have them talk to you about them. Uh, the downside to it is, though, is most people really don't know or don't have the infrastructure to keep beer at a perfect temperature. Because, again, you would literally have to have like three different cooling systems for your beers. And a lot of places just don't have that. There is a place, if you want to see state-of-the-art, there's a place in Brooklyn, if I can remember the name of it, Torst, I think. And every tap is fine-tuned for the beer that's in it. Wow. Every tap. And you can see it. They've got, they've got the lines running and the gauges and all the stuff. And they can mix a little nitrogen in there if they need to or a little more CO2 if they need to. Or I mean, it's just it's state-of-the-art. And it's walking distance from the Brooklyn Brewing Company, which is another amazing place. That would make a great beer destination. And I remember when I first started doing the beer traveling thing, uh, I was actually disappointed that the craft beer scene had gotten any bigger than it had gotten in those days. I went to New York City and was disappointed. I mean, disappointed. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years, I go back and never, I mean, I think at that point, we have better craft beer here than I could there at that time. How much credit do you take for the Arkansas craft beer scene in general in Little Rock? I am a legend in my own mind. <laughs> I love that. I was, I'm going to have to steal yeah. that from you. You know, I'm a beer snob, you know. No, I, uh, I do think I played a part in it. I, I think uh, – And hold on, not to cut you off, but to preface this, so it's, sometimes it's better other people say it than you do. You were not only just a craft beer enthusiast. You pushed places to carry things because oh, yeah. I did that in multiple different places. You pushed and pressured places to try different things and expand their horizons and carry that. So you absolutely deserve credit for that, uh, whether you were going to give yourself credit or not. But I just wanted to preface it with that. Go ahead. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate your kind words there. But I, I really did try and cheerlead for craft beer. You know, when people would say, well, my customers don't like that beer. My standard line was, well, don't you want some new customers? I mean, I mean, Thurston Howe down here, back when they were open, I walk in, she had no craft beer whatsoever. I talked to her into buying one craft beer. She said she would carry one just 
So I'd come there and drink it with her. And before they closed, they were, they were a craft beer place. I mean, they, you could get all kinds of different craft beer and she became very knowledgeable in craft beer over time. She didn't know squat about it there at first, but, uh, I really, I, I, I wish that place could come back. I wish there was because I love that little place. But anyway. At what point did the audience catch up with the, the amount of beers out there? Like which one was ahead of the other? I think it, it, it's, there is no real balance there. I think that, uh, uh, I think we got a little too big, a little too quick. And uh, maybe we thought we could do a little more than we could do. And, um, and so at one point the beer got ahead of the audience and then and again, the audience gets ahead of the beer. And, you know, if you want a certain kind of beer, you just you know, you want to go someplace that's got it, you know? And I think also one of the things I'd like to put in a pitch for is when you buy a good craft beer, or if you're buying even just a regular beer, buy it from a liquor store, buy it from a liquor store. It Why is easier to buy it in a grocery store. It's easier to buy it at Walmart, but those are the beers that the liquor stores stay in business with. Anything that sells in high volume, that gives them the financial resources to now keep the specialty stuff over here on the side that does not sell as well. It's not as profitable to carry craft beer. And not only that, really a lot of it, you got to keep it refrigerated. So that's an added expense. You know, why would I want to, you know, take on a bunch of craft beer when maybe I ought to be a whiskey kind of liquor store, man, all you got to do is set that shit on the shelf and it's fine. You know, you don't have to do nothing to it. So, but I, it really, it goes back and forth. The market gets ahead of the, of the, of the demand. And then sometimes the demand gets ahead of the market. It's gone back and forth two or three times. Kind of in closing, did you have a, when, when you first got into it and then you get the newsletter and I know since you've gone in retirement, we'll get into where that people can find you in a second, but like, was there I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. Was there a peak and did you ever have a end goal for all of this or were you just kind of along for the ride to see how big you could grow? I had no idea where I was going. I didn't have the first clue. I mean, I'm not a businessman. I don't know how to run a business. I told all of my sponsors and people that supported the newsletter that I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. The first time one of them asked me for an invoice, I didn't even, I well, how am I going to figure out how to write an invoice? I don't know how to write invoices. There's nothing to it, but it was then because I didn't know how to do it, you know, but it, uh, it just took off, man. I mean, I just just kind of rode with it, and I'm like, I'm still rolling with it. I mean, I've dialed back a little bit since I'm not writing the weekly newsletter anymore. But uh, I mean, I was just the other day, a lady called me, and we said earlier about the the Southern Blonde. She said, I'm 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 here. I'm, I'm at the liquor store. I hope you don't mind me calling, but I, I can't find my Southern Blonde. I said, We'll just go pick you up a six pack of that blue. It's the same thing. Oh, okay, thank you. I mean, I, I love doing stuff like that. That's just fun. So it did. Do you go into places now? Like, if, what, was there a moment where you went into somewhere and some people knew who you were walking in? Oh, yeah. That happens all the time. Now, that's the good part about traveling, though, because once I travel, that's not the case. I mean, so you prefer that nobody way. knows me in Asheville. So you prefer it that way? I don't. I, I prefer a balance between the two. Okay. I mean, if it really got to where I couldn't sit down and have a beer because people were bugging me all the time, that would be a problem. But it, that's not a problem. They just don't do it. I mean, it's just so somebody you know, greets me and says, I used to take your newsletter or whatever. You know, it's usually a very, very pleasant exchange. How many beers have you had in your life? That types, not, 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 uh, not, not finished. How many different types of beer have you had in your life? I have, I have no idea. Uh, and I'm you sure thought about there's that? still some styles out there that I haven't tried. I mean, they're just, once you, beer is so much more complex than fruit, fermented fruit. I mean, you know, cider, you've got 
yeast and cider, I mean, apple juice, and that's it. I mean, what are you going to do to it? But in beer, all the hops taste different. All the malts taste different. And then you start combining how much you're toasting the malts or not toasting the malts. I mean, there's just so many different things you can do to beer to change the way it tastes. Do you prefer a specific type of beer? What's your, like, do you have a favorite beer? Do you have a favorite type of beer? And then if you do, like, how do you keep an open mind when trying something else? Oh, I definitely try and keep an open mind because um, even if it's not my favorite thing, you know, like really sweet beers, for example, that's just not my thing other than maybe some of those really big Belgian ones. Sometimes they're, they're, they're good, sweet. But um, I try to keep an open mind when I'm drinking beer. Really right now, I, if I had a mission, it would be on how to take care of beer because I don't think people realize how important it is to keep certain beers fresh. Some beers, it doesn't matter. Some beers age great. The higher the alcohol content usually means they're just that much better uh, at aging. But, uh, but I'll go into a store and I'll, and, well, I, I, I name, won't name any names, but I went to an establishment the other day and a lady that does not know me from my beer background and she was sitting there at the table. And I took a drink of my beer and I set it down. I said, well, I'm not going to drink that one. And she says, you mind if I drink it? Have that. It's all yours. And there wasn't anything wrong with the recipe or the style or anything. It just had not been handled right. And it tasted bad. It tasted like it had been poured through a, a paper sack to me. It just had a cardboard flavor to it. But that's, that's from lack of care. You know, you can't take care of your beer. You're talking like someone that would be like your buddy, a wine stomp, because that was kind of, if you did have a goal in all this, I remember reading a quote you had from an article a while back was, why not take the every man's drink and elevate it? Like you're talking like someone that, you know, drinks wine or whatever. So you're kind of what you're getting at is you need to take beer similar to how you take care of wine, but people don't necessarily view it that way because of what you see on the right. commercials every day. Beer, the more hops there are in a beer, the more it hastes to change temperature. And the more that light will affect it. So if you've got a beer rack, I don't care how bright, dark brown those bottles are, if you've got a beer rack sitting right in the front window with the sun shining in, that's, that's going to ruin that beer. It will ruin it. <laughs> what would you do today if someone walked up to you and handed you a uh, Mountains or Blue Miller Light, I, uh, Coors Light? Oh, I'd throw a party. Really? <laughs> I ain't drinking it, but, <laughs> you know. So you wouldn't drink it, though. So someone was like, hey, I, I, let me tell I you this. Let me tell you this. There are times that, it, you know, I'll give you an example. I remember one time I went deer hunting, and the last day we ran out of beer. And when my buddies started offering me Miller Genuine Draft something I've never <laughs> heard of. And I drank it, and I enjoyed it just fine. You know, it's not that some of those beers taste bad as much as it is they could taste so much better. I mean, it's not, I mean, if you get it cold enough and drink it cold, it's refreshing. It, it, it'll get the job done. But man, they, you, you can do something. I mean, it's like McDonald's. McDonald's food is delicious. You can do better. I mean, that that's not, that's not the, you know, the best food in town, but I mean, it's delicious. So. I just thought of another question. So when your buddies and you guys go out and do stuff, are you bringing craft beer? Like, do you have a more sophisticated beer um, kind of uh, that you bring with you the most to your buddies or how does that work? Yeah. 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 In fact, at one point, uh, the guy that I like to hunt with wanted to start learning a little bit about beer. And so uh, that was my hunting dues is that, you know, I would bring a million different beers for us to try 
over the course of our four or five days there hunting and, uh, and, and, and like that. I mean, but, but it, even now it's like, if I know somebody doesn't like anything other than just ice cold lager, then I will buy a, a yingling, you know, that's a, that's a family owned business. I mean, they're American, you know, uh, all of the big beers otherwise are, are foreign owned now. I mean, there's Budweiser's not an American beer. Coors is not an American beer. Miller's not an American beer. Uh, and so really, if you look right down to it, Yingling's the largest American brewery now because they really are American. I've never thought about that. So I can take a beer like that to them, you know, and, and, and again, I'll drink, I'll drink cold lagers. They taste good. Do you, uh, do you get stuff sent to you? I have, um, they, they say it is illegal, but I've never had any problem okay. with it. No, no <laughs> one's ever given me the slides. We went on vacation in, in uh, San Francisco, and they had so many good beers, including Alesmith, which is my, one of my two or three favorite American breweries. And I, I packed them up like I would a bottle of wine. They had the little styrofoam things there, and I packed them up, sent them home, none to it. One time I, I was convinced that the, that the, uh, Baggage handlers had stolen some of my beer that I brought back from my trips and stuff. And sure enough, it, later that evening, here they came with it. You know, just it just got lost, just like any other piece of luggage got lost. Last thing I got for you: Do you have a favorite beer? Do you keep like a running list of five? How does that? Do you rank them all? Or you just had too many to uh, to even. Well, my absolute favorite is the West Leader and Twelve, or really pretty much anything West Leader and makes. But the West Leader and Twelve is just it's beyond my ability to describe. But really what I will usually do, I tend to prefer IPAs and I like the double IPAs in particular. And, uh, and I'll keep uh, maybe three or four different kinds in there so that uh, when I get ready to have an IPA, I got one. And uh, I think right now I may have four different ones in there. But I, I just, you know, but I, I don't really have a favorite beer, but I have lots of top 20s, you know. I've, you know, pretty much anything Dogfish Head makes, pretty much anything Stone makes, which makes the Arrogant Bastard, um, you know, any of those are going to be good. Uh, Salt Lake City makes some good beers. Um, you know, Cigar City from uh, Florida makes really good beer. I mean, there's just so many good beers out there that it's just, it, it it's, it's hard to tell. And really, there's a lot of really good beer out there now. I mean, you go to these places, when I travel, I... I I don't think I've ever been to a town I couldn't find a good beer selection. Even the smallest ones, they're they're great. I mean, and thirty years ago that wouldn't have been the case, right? No, hell no, hell no. I went to. A, a, I hope I got. I, it's a it's a name of a big city, but it's in Georgia. It's like Columbus, Georgia, or something Georgia. But it was a very small town in Georgia. And right up the road, my wife noticed that that's where they film a lot of the Hallmark stuff that she watches. But this is super small town stuff. And yet, right there, not even in a city limit, just there in the middle of a cow field was a great brewery. I mean, um, can't think of the name of it right now. It, it comes to me about the time of the interview ends. But, um, man, I mean, you used to find stuff like that all the time. Some tiny, well, here in Arkansas. Northern part of the state, you got a little hole in the wall. It's out in the middle of nowhere called Gravity. Some of the best beer I have ever drank anywhere in the world. Same thing over to the west, just outside of Paris, Arkansas. You got Preston Rose. 
This lady is an organic farmer that knows everything there is to know about how to turn stuff that grows out of the ground into, into food and beverage. First time I met her, I had never heard of her at all. And she hands me a, a gluten-free beer, which is very difficult to brew and make it taste good. Wonderful. First sip of it, I knew I liked it. So, I mean, we've got really great breweries even here, even in the small towns now. They, the small towns have crazy ideas. They got a new one in Jacksonville I hadn't even been to yet that's a combination brewery and barbershop. <laughs> and Jacksonville's dry. So how much trouble did they have to go through to get that place put in there? You know, blade and, blade and barrel or something like that. Anyway. That's uh, that's crazy. John, I could have asked you questions for three hours. I really... I could answer them for three. I love talking. <laughs> oh, I, I can certainly tell the, the passion oozes through. I really appreciate your time. This was awesome stuff. Anytime, buddy. Anytime. Um, and Very next time I'm back through Arkansas, I'll, uh, I'll give you a holler. Hopefully, you can uh, teach me how to drink a beer or two the right way. I will take you out for beers that you will enjoy, I promise. Before we go, where can the people find you? I know we talked about... Cut back on the newsletter because uh, you entered retirement. And the last thing you want to do when you're in retirement is work, right? But your right. Facebook, your your fa strictly Facebook, it seems like right now. So John the That's Beer Snob Facebook page, is that correct? I'm John the Beer Snob at, 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 on Facebook. And then I also am John the Beer Snob at Hotmail.com if you prefer to email. Um, but either one of those will get you to me. Perfect. And I do return message. I do return message. As you know, because yeah. you sent me a message through my Facebook thing. And you got back to me quickly. So check the, check both of those out. If you have any questions, he'll be glad to answer them. Clearly, he has the, he has the knowledge. John, I really appreciate the time. This has been, been a blast. Well, and uh, hopefully we'll cross paths again soon. Thanks again for all your kind work.